Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. On an afternoon in early September 1907, a nearly 50-year-old woman made the steep climb up into the hills above Florence. She was a painter, an impressionist we would call her now. As she came to a spot that suited her, she turned to look at the familiar scene behind her that so many painters and other artists had captured before her. The reddish golden domes of the Duomo and the roofs and the turrets of that Renaissance city lit by the Italian sun. But that wasn't the scene that interested her. Instead, she turned her back on the city and fixed her gaze further up into the hills. She set up her easel, and she began to work. It was the unexpected, the surprising, the beautiful in the everyday, and, as the title of the recently published biography of her clearly shows, she was fascinated in forever seeing new beauties. Those unexpected elements that appear all around us that give us beauty. Her name was Mary Rogers Williams, an American woman born in the middle of the 19th century in the farmlands of Connecticut who found herself fascinated by so many of the scenes that once captured the great old masters. She left the world unexpectedly not long after that afternoon of sketching in the hills above Florence, and thanks to my guest today, author and independent scholar Eve Kahn, we now know her story. Eve herself beautifully paints scenes from Mary's life in words like the one that I just described to you in her book and in her talks and her lectures about Mary. It is through Eve's artistic detective work unwinding a story that has countless twists and turns that we today can appreciate and see inside an everyday life of a long-lost female American Impressionist painter. So join me as we go back in time and discover her story. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Guild of Gentlemen History podcast produced by Bowery Boys Media. Every two weeks, I'll take you under the velvet ropes and behind the glitter and the gold to share stories, secrets, style, and often some scandal in the worlds of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. A few years ago, when I was working in the art auction world, a colleague handed me a neatly folded bag that clearly contained a book and said, I just know you will love this. He had just been to a lecture by my guest today, Eve Kahn, for her newly published book, Forever Seeing New Beauties, the forgotten impressionist Mary Rogers Williams, 1857 to 1907. And he had bought a copy of her book for me. And indeed, he was right. 
Mary Rogers Williams has been called, in fact, by our author, the Mary Cassatt you never heard of. And as I began to read through the book, reading the snippets of letters and seeing art not seen in over a hundred years, I was transported immediately into a world that took me from the lush landscapes of 19th century New England into the artistic worlds of Victorian London and Belle Epoque Paris, following the life of a woman whose work was nearly unknown. She personally knew artists such as James Whistler, William Merritt Chase, and Child Hassam. She refused to copy anyone, but was steadfast in developing a style and technique of her own. This story is Mary's for sure, but it is also Eve's in how she discovered Mary and her work. And as we discuss that story, I promise a fascinating thunderbolt of a revelation at the end. But let me introduce you to Eve, who is here with me today to guide us through Mary's world. Eve M. Kahn is the former antiques columnist for the New York Times and an independent scholar. She writes regularly for the New York Times, Apollo Magazine, the Magazine Antiques, and Atlas Obscura. She's based here in Manhattan, and she helps lead scholarly nonprofit groups, including the Grolier Club, the Victorian Society's New York Chapter, and Cooney's Women Writing Women's Lives. Her book, Forever Seeing New Beauties, The Forgotten Impressionist Mary Rogers Williams, 1857 to 1907, was published by Wesleyan University Press in 2019 and continues to win prizes. Eve, it is a complete pleasure to welcome you and have you here on The Gilded Gentleman today. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks to the Greater Bowery Boys Network for (laughs) for hosting me here. We are all so happy to have you here. So let's dive in. There is just so much to say and to talk about here. So you have done a, a really a great deal of work and published articles on a number of little known, or one could even say really forgotten 19th century women artists. And certainly until your work on her, Mary Rogers Williams could, could we could certainly say was, was one of those. But can you share with our listeners how you came to discover Mary, or perhaps I suppose you could say how, how Mary came to discover you? Mary found me, right. So people would always ask me, I've written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles. People would always ask me, when are you going to write a book? And I would always respond, ah, you know, I don't want to cover something that's been covered. There's nothing new to say about X, Y, and Z. Only if I stumble upon some trove of unpublished material, then I might write a book. So in 2012, one of my antiques columns for the New York Times was all about the latest news about recent discoveries about circa 1900 American women painters, exhibitions, books, databases in progress. Uh, there was a biography in progress, which has since been released, which is magical. Um, Catherine Manthorne of CUNY's biography of um, Eliza Greatorex, a great 19th century painter. So I wrote a cluster of news items. And then I went to visit my mom in the 1830s farmhouse in Stamford, Connecticut, where I grew up. My mother, Renee Kahn, is a historian, preservation activist, and an artist. And the 1830s farmhouse in Stamford is still full of the antiques that my mother and I started collecting when I was a kid. We would go to tag sales every Saturday morning, starting in the 1970s. And the house is still full of the wonderful ceramics, glassware, furniture, paintings that we had amassed. 
So I wrote this column about circa 1900 American women painters. I went to visit my mom. I remember thinking something along the lines of, I'm an antiques columnist. I should know more about the material culture in the farmhouse where I grew up. But I hadn't paid much attention to it as an adult. And I happened to ask my mother about a painting that hangs in the living room. The living room is kind of dark. There's a dense row of 100-year-old rhododendrons across the front. I just happened to ask her about this pond front scene. And she said, oh, yes, you know, bought it in the 70s in Coscob, part of Greenwich. There'd been an Impressionist artist colony there around 1900, signed lower right M.R. Williams, the only artist using that signature around that time, according to the reference books that were available at that time, would have been Mary Rogers Williams, and I don't know much about her, my mother said. So I went home and Googled her. And the internet at that time knew nothing about her, except that she was born in Hartford, maybe 1856, maybe 1857, died in Europe, maybe Paris, maybe Florence, maybe 1906, maybe 1907. And the internet also knew that a portrait by her of a friend of hers from Hartford, an artist named Henry White from the 1890s, had been shown at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Florence Griswold, as many listeners may know, was a a sea captain's daughter who around 1900 turned her family home into a boarding house that catered to artists. Her gorgeous home is a museum. There's gorgeous galleries in the back. They had devoted a show in 2009 to Henry's paintings, and they'd showed Mary's portrait of him in that show. So I called the museum and said, who owns that portrait of this artist done in the 1890s? My family also owns a painting by the woman who painted it, signed M.R. Williams. And the museum put me in touch with Henry's grandsons. There's two surviving grandsons, uh, George White, who, uh, with his wife Betsy, founded the Eugene O'Neill Theater in Waterford, um, outside New London. It's an amazing cultured family. I have met no boring people while researching Mary Rogers Williams. And there's another grandson named Nelson Beebe is his nickname. He's, he's an artist. He spends most of the year in Florence, Italy. I call him. I reach him on his cell phone on a piazza somewhere. And he basically says... Mary Rogers Williams, you're really onto something. Our grandfather adored her. He said, we have some of her work. He said, hang on to it. It's good quality. Somebody might be interested someday. I'll be back in the States in a few weeks. Come see me. And so I jump on Amtrak to New London. He picks me up at the train station, brings me to the gorgeous shingled and field stone waterfront homes that their grandfather Henry built. And they don't have some of her work. They have a hundred of her 120-ish known surviving paintings, most pastels, oil on canvas, oil on panel, watercolors, mostly landscapes, handful of portraits. They have thousands of pages of her letters. Um, and they're in chronological order. And I was about to pass out. And I say, <laughs> I'm verklempt, which is a Yiddish word for, um, you know, uh, overcome by positive emotion. And then I look at George White, and I say, oh, my gosh, oh, of course, you know, the word verklempt, you know, theater people, having uh, founded and run the Eugene O'Neill Theater. And that's where the magic starts. I, I open those letters on the Amtrak home and start to dive into Mary's story. And never looked back. So let's talk a little bit about her background. It's fascinating. So she was a baker's daughter, right, growing up in in Hartford during the Civil War and just after. How did she discover her talent? How did anyone discover her talent? Where did she train? What do we know about her early life as an artist? So I've had to piece together her early life from um, archival crumbs in some cases, as opposed to her adult life, which is documented in extraordinary detail in her letters. The letters don't start until she's an adult, and she doesn't look back much. Good Connecticut stock is how uh, one obituary described her family. So her father was a prosperous baker, um, Edward Williams. He baked the cake for 
for uh, Samuel Colt, the gunmaker's wedding to the future philanthropist Elizabeth Colt in the 1850s. It was five feet wide and four feet tall, the great confection of mid-19th century Hartford. Mary's mother, Marianne French Williams, both, both Edward and Marianne French Williams were from prosperous working class families. They had four surviving daughters. Mary was the third. Three of the four daughters were became teachers. They all went to Hartford Public High School, right, which was right next to their home in Hartford, an elite institution founded in the 17th century. When Mary was there, there would have been Chinese students who'd been sent as ambassadors by the Chinese government. One of her sisters uh, became a teacher of the deaf. One of her sisters became a science teacher. And Mary became an artist and an art teacher, and I don't know why. I do know where she trained in Hartford. It was called the Society of Decorative Art. It was founded by some of the great industrialists' wives, as well as Mark Twain's wife, Olivia Clemens. Hart- Hartford was full of cultured people in Mary's time, but there is no explanation for why someone, why some, a baker's daughter, even a prosperous baker's daughter, would choose the path of art. I read in your, your writings about her that she, she also trained for a bit here in New York City. Can you talk about that and what we know or think we can surmise about that? So she did look back at that briefly. So I know she trained her mentors in Hartford included an artist named James Wells Champney, Boston native, Civil War veteran whose work is quite sweet and realistic. And he told Mary she had not enough self-conceit to succeed. I know that she trained with uh, Dwight Tryon, a landscape painter who eventually runs Smith's Art Department. Um, And I know she came to New York in the early 1880s for a few months and trained with William Merritt Chase. And he famously was a harsh but funny critic. People used to descend on his classes just to watch him tear students apart um, in an amusing way. And he told Mary she had too much timidity to succeed. We'd probably disagree with that, right? I think. But she was very much, uh, Mary Rogers Williams was very much a working woman. And it was through her, her connections to Dwight Tryon that she secured a position at Smith with him and worked for a number of years. Could you really share uh, what went on with that? That's a fascinating story. So Dwight Tryon, who was a dear friend of Henry White's, uh, Mary's Mary's friend, who eventually inherited her estate, um, he was a Hartford native. He came from an impoverished background, but he ended up quite successful as an artist and an art teacher early in his life. He had fabulously wealthy patrons, including uh, Charles Lang Freer, the great philanthropist in, in Detroit and then Washington. Freer believed that Tryon was uh, an artist for the ages. I find his work quite boring. Landscapes, mostly, and uh, they're mostly birch groves or marshes, pastures. The path goes off to the right, the path goes off to the left. Freer bought many, many of Tryon's major works, and um, it was said of Tryon by a friend of his that he was so fortunate that if he fell down a sewer, he would find a gold watch at the bottom. By the late 1880s, he took over as head of Smith's, Smith College's art department. Mary had trained with him at the Society of Decorative Art and then worked as a teacher under him, and he brought her with him from Hartford to Northampton. It seems that Mary's perhaps respite during the, the period of time when she was at Smith, or, or, or where she could certainly 
exercise her artistic vision was actually in Europe. Can you talk a little bit about her escapes to Europe during the summers and even the years that she spent in there, in Europe? So Mary hated teaching. She hated the cloying embryo intellects of the girls and her convent life in various drafty old houses at the outskirts of campus. Her title was teacher or instructor of drawing and painting her entire career at Smith. She not only taught virtually all the fine art courses. For much of her career at Smith, she also taught art history. And Dwight Tryon's responsibilities were to show up on campus one morning every three weeks to critique what the girls are working on. And other than that, he's in New York, he's at his country house in Massachusetts, or he's roaming along, um, sailing and fishing along the New England coast. So Mary took spent every summer she could in Europe. She spent a sabbatical in Europe, 1898, 1899, and she spent the last year of her life in Europe, 1906, 1907. She uh, would be plotting her escape as soon as she got back, basically, in September from her most recent trip. And she wrote home to her unmarried sisters. None of her three sisters ever married. She wrote home to her sisters every day on the road, and she wrote to her dear friend Henry every few weeks. I so want to talk about this correspondence. You 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 teased us with it at the beginning. You saw that you found the thousands and thousands of pages. But it was the detail of her daily life that in some ways is the most extraordinary here because it's so rare that we ever get that volume of description. She doesn't really discuss her artistic vision so much, but she tells us about what she buys. And can you share a little bit about what the character of the correspondence is like and what you learned about her through it? So the the Whites lent me box after box of her letters from that first visit to them in, in Waterford in uh, spring 2012. And I opened a first batch on the Amtrak home, and Mary leaps off the page. She's feisty and funny and self-deprecating and incredibly observant about everything. Funny things waiters say, glimpses of royalty on the road, how men and women are treated differently on the road and on the art market, what a produce truck looks like as it pulls into a market stall in Paris laden with cauliflowers and radishes and carrots. It's extraordinary, the level of detail. She travels eventually from the Arctic Circle in Norway to Pestum, south of Naples, and she describes hiking and biking and taking the reins of horse-drawn carriages at the edges of cliffs along the road. But she does not mention how she chose her compositions. She just writes that she went out into the countryside to find a sketch or catch a sketch. She does not note how she chose particular portrait sitters, except that they were sometimes in case in some cases they were friends of hers, or they were colleagues, or they were Smith students that had that had found her. She doesn't mention her artistic process. People have asked me why did she use watercolor here? Why did she use pastel there? Why oil on panel, oil on canvas? She doesn't write about that. She just writes that she set off to find a sketch or catch a sketch. And she doesn't write about her personal life. She traveled almost exclusively with women friends and relatives. Uh, she traveled with two men occasionally. One of them was half her age and became an architectural historian at UPenn. But her family scolded her when she traveled with men. That was considered inappropriate by her good Connecticut stock 
family. I believe that she was gay. I believe that one of her travel companions named Mabel Eager was the love of her life. Just the kind of girl I like to be with is how Mary described her. But Mary does not go into any detail about her love life. She knew, unlike way too many modern day corporate titans and government officials, that if you have a secret about your love life that you want kept, that you don't want your friends or family or the world to know, don't write anything down. That's such an important lesson, right? One of the things that I, I so loved when you've talked about the correspondence is you talk about opening letters and things falling out. So it's not just letters. There are artifacts hidden in these pages. Can you talk about some of the things and, and what insight they give us into Mary's life? So she would send home a paragraph or two per day to her sisters and then a full couple-page letter to Henry every few weeks. So a daily couple of passages. And to make sure that they could visualize what she was seeing and experiencing, she would send home postcards, uh, snapshots, confetti from a Mardi Gras parade in Paris at one point, also a snippet of a dress she was having made so that her sisters could actually see the color and feel the texture. They're all tucked inside the envelopes. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about Mary as an artist. Now, you have called her yourself a proto-modernist, and she's certainly, I suppose, an impressionist, if not even a tonalist. We can put all those labels on there. But how would you categorize her? How would she have categorized herself, or how would the art world have categorized her when she was painting? So... She showed in dozens of group shows from Paris to Indianapolis. She had a, a, a two-person show with Henry that was in Hartford and then Springfield, Mass. And she had a couple of one-woman shows over the years. The critics would single her out for mention in the reviews. Some of them loved her dreamy, atmospheric, what we would now consider proto-modern effects. One of them said that she was too abstract for his tastes and needed to go through a severe course of drawing. And one of them that I really hate said that she wasn't copying anyone. Her work wasn't derivative, which was strange for a woman in art. And alas, I cannot find in her correspondence how she reacted to being called strange for not copying. Um, when asked what style she proposed to adopt by an interviewer in the 1890s, the only interview I could find with her, she replied, if I cannot have a style of my own, I trust I may be spared an adopted one. It just is horrifying today to hear that kind of thing, right? But she was she fought back a little bit with that. James Whistler, fascinating relationship. He was an acquaintance of hers in London and later is a teacher. But Mary was pretty opinionated about her connection with Whistler. Can you share with, with our listeners how she came to know him and how her opinion shifted a little bit about him? So early in her career, she idolized him. She thought he had done the definitive images of Venice, for example. Early in her trips to Europe, she basically invited herself over to his home in London and he gave her a tour, a rare deer, she thought she considered him. She loved his garden. She loved the paintings on the walls. He sent her to the peacock room, which he had um, designed. But he told her, don't tell the client that I sent you, because he was involved in yet another lawsuit, which Mary could not have known. A rare deer, she considers him, on her first trips to Europe. She spends a sabbatical in Paris, living on the left bank in the, in, from 1898 to 1899. And during that time, she signs up for classes that he's giving. 
in Paris. There's uh, single-sex classes. The classes for women are more expensive than the classes for men. She signs up, and she discovers he's a terrible teacher and a pompous fop, and um, he just reads his own writings out in class. He wants everyone's work to look like his. Women fawn over him. What fools women can be, Mary writes home. She also writes that I noticed whenever he needed to really see anything, he took out his monocle, that it was simply an affectation, the little tin god on wheels he becomes to her by the end of her sabbatical. Such a surprise when we think about what we may suggest as his personality. So interesting to see her perspective. And with that, we're going to take a little break and we will be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house... It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm here with Eve Kahn discussing Mary Rogers Williams, the forgotten impressionist. And we were having a conversation about Mary's artistic technique, and I want to pick up a little bit on that. So what were some of Mary's signature techniques, and how was that different from what was happening at the time with either male or female artists? So there are a lot of forgotten late 19th, early 20th century um, American women painters. Much of their work is very sweet. Mary writes to her dear friend Henry, mocking some of the sweet work of her time. Paintings of kittens knocking over milk. She writes hilariously mocking this, saying she'd love to spend time with the artist. And I think she means to actually smack the guy around. I'm not sure. <laughs> her portraits have these gauzy backdrops. It, there's a figure in the foreground, and then the background is simply suggested by striations. It, and there's a dozen colors in these backgrounds, and there's this um, almost iridescent quality and an illusion of depth. When she painted landscapes, she considered those her best works. Not everyone agrees with her. Some, when she painted a landscape in oil on canvas, she again and again and again revised the work. She would scrape it off and redo it. I don't know why those didn't please her right away. And with pastels, they must have been executed 
in minutes of a flick of the pastel stick. I own a number of them. Don't bid against me if you see them on eBay, okay? They come <laughs> up for auction. You see any any variation on the name Eve Khan bidding against you, just back off. I have bought her work, so I live with it, and I stare at it every day, and I could see that it's just a flick of pinkish red that, that, that represents a, a Mediterranean tile roof, and it's a flick of green that represents uh, you know, trees at the horizon, and it's a flick of purple that, that represents dawn light coming through. Such modern techniques and such a modern style that, that certainly went against what was so popular at the time. As much as Mary painted scenes from her travels and from Norway to Italy to the various places she went, it really seems some of her loveliest images are actually from her native Connecticut. Can you talk a little bit about what her relationship was with New England and the world that she grew up in, even though she was spending so much time in Europe? So, despite her cosmopolitanism, she never stopped longing for the Connecticut landscape. Her father, Edward, had a sister named Wilhelmina, Aunt Willie, she was known, and she continued a a tradition in the Williams family that had been going on for generations by the time Mary was born in 1857 of farming in Portland, Connecticut, actually a hamlet within Portland, Connecticut, called Cobalt. And Portland is right across the Connecticut River from Middletown, where Wesleyan University Press, which published my book, Bless Them, is located. Mary would sketch uh, her memories of Connecticut, even when she was on the road. She exhibited three pastels of Connecticut at the Paris Salon in 1899. She never stopped writing home about her nostalgia. She would be standing on the banks of a famous river in France or Germany, and she would write home, it winds, but not as beautifully as the Connecticut. And she would long for her Aunt Willie's succotash on the road. I love that. And she also traveled up into to Provincetown, which was really pre-artist colony there, and, I, and up into Maine as well, yes? So she traveled when she couldn't get to Europe. She would take trips along the New England, New England seaboard. She was in Provincetown before there was a formal art school and an artist's colony there. And she was in um, on Monhegan Island, reducing the Maine rocky coastline to just suggestions of wisps of foam and uh, greenery clinging to veiny rocks. She was in these places at the same time as people you've heard of, like Rockwell Kent and Robert Henry. Well, as a good New England and Maine boy myself, I do love her images of Maine, I have to say. Now, we also know that while she was teaching at Smith, she was able to escape to New York, at least occasionally. What do we know about that? And dealers or exhibitions she saw or participated in, what do we know about her New York time? So she would come to New York, sometimes with her dear friend Mabel Eager. She would spend a few days here. She also came here with the daughter of the president of Smith. His nickname among the students and faculty was Prexy, and his daughter's nickname among students and faculty was Prossy. And uh, Mary thought Prossy was kind of a dope, but she would try to help educate Prossy, who had interest in art. So she would come to New York. She would go to the galleries. A dealer named William Macbeth became interested in her. He gave her a one-woman show of her pastel landscapes. He described them in his in-house magazine as poetic in sentiment and crisp and free in treatment. And nothing sold except a pastel of the pond near her Aunt Willie's farm in Cobalt. Um, And that pond scene sold to her friend Henry. She found out that it had sold. And then she found out that her dear friend had bought it, paying the gallery commission in order to support her career. Henry at one point wanted to join the National Academy in New York, where Mary had exhibited over 
over the years and where he had exhibited over the years. And Mary wanted nothing to do with something so mainstream. She wrote to Henry um, this poem, I would not be an N.A., meaning have National Academy's initials after your name. I would not be an N.A., nor with the N.A.'s hang. I'd rather join a gayer, a smarter, wilder gang. And I think she did, yes. Now, her years at Smith actually came to an end a little abruptly, but certainly in, I like to think, a show of determination and strength as a female artist really demanding her due. What happened? So in spring 1906, remember she's been teacher or instructor of drawing and painting for nearly 20 years. Her boss, Dwight Tryon, who is never there except one morning every three weeks, that is when he doesn't call in sick, is head of the department. She writes to the Smith administration, mostly male, that um, if not promoted to associate professor after all these years, I will resign. And they basically say, if you'll resign, if not promoted, then resign. They find someone less accomplished to take her job. And the archives at Smith show that they were already orchestrating to have um, a man full-time on campus who would have been inserted over Mary's head anyway. They were basically preparing to shove her out. So she's a little stunned. They called her bluff. She packs her things um, in the gorgeous masonry building where the Smith College Art Department is headquartered. And she goes back to the same street in Paris where she had spent her sabbatical, 1898, 1899. So she moves to Paris, basically summer of 1906, with no plans to come home. One of the things I find so fascinating in your writing about this is that before setting off for Europe, for what unbeknownst to her would be her last time, she saw the world of modernism coming in in New York. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was an amazing moment for the art world, and I think probably for her. She goes to see the galleries that are showing the Ashcan School, John Sloan, Robert Henry. She loves modernism. It's in the same letter about, about, about loving modernism that she warns Henry that she would never be an N.A., that she'd rather join that gayer, smarter, wilder gang. So Mary leaves Smith and, and really America, as you just said, and she settles in Europe, in Paris, actually. What do we know about that last year of her life? She has a lazy last year. She's uh, kind of running out of money. She, her, her family still has money from her father's estate that they're surviving on. Her sisters aren't working by, the, by this time. She ends up having to share her studio on the left bank with a young uh, Smith grad. And she claims that that distracts her. She can't work. That's, you know, she's very particular. She gets an offer to teach American girls to paint at Giverny and turns it down. You know, I want to do my, I want to focus on my own work. By summer 1907, she goes to Siena, where she has spent a number of summers. She, particularly in Siena, but wherever she travels in Catholic countries, she loves to go to church multiple times on Sundays just for the spectacle, the pageantry, the priest's robes, the glimpse of nuns in the choir loft, and the haze of incense rising above it all. She's a pleasant last summer in Siena. She has a number of intellectual expat women friends in Italy. She doesn't know she's dying. She has ab- 
abdominal tumors that she's been ignoring for years. So September 1907, um, as Carl has so gorgeously described, she goes to Florence and she takes her usual hike up to Fiesole in the hills as she takes one last hike in mid-September 1907. And she collapses at Fiesole and she is brought to a hospital in the hills above Florence. It's a gorgeous building. It's NYU's dorm now. And um, she dies in a hospital run by a British nurse who had trained with Florence Nightingale. So another interesting woman intellectual at Mary's side, even in her last days. One of the things I find so moving whenever you talk about Mary, and particularly the the end of her life, is that you made that same trek that she made up in the, into the hills of Fiesole. Can you share with us what you saw and what you felt standing quite literally where Mary was standing to make her sketches? So there can't have been any other tourist ever at that spot I was standing in at Fiesole who was simply staring up the, at the arid sienna-toned hills with the vertical stripes of the green trees and the ordinary outbuildings along the hill. Every other tourist who's ever come up that far into the hills was looking behind them at the glorious domes of Florence. Mary wanted to, she wasn't copying, which was strange for a woman, and so she focused on where she could see that she could find a sketch or catch a sketch. Now, after all the work that you've done on Mary and her life, what is it about her that for you matters the most? So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that there are very few men and virtually no women artists of her time for whom it is possible to track their daily life. I can tell you what the sand felt like under her feet in northern France as she was walking out, and I can tell you how how amused she was at her own mistake when she starts to sketch some uh, sailboats lying on their sides, and then the tide comes in, and suddenly they're bobbing up, they're bobbing vertically, and um, they've ruined the composition that she likes. She's just amused at herself for having made that mistake. I can tell you what she paid for tram rides. I can tell you how she avoided expenses of buying new clothing. There can't be any other woman of her time or and very few men of her time, artists, for whom we can get inside their head to some extent and uh, walk in their footsteps. Now, the tale of your discovery of Mary has really a quite unbelievable and ironic twist to it. This, my listeners, is the thunderbolt revelation that I promised uh, at the beginning of, of the show. Eve, could you share that particular chapter of the story? So, as I mentioned, in spring of 2012, I started researching my mother's painting, signed M.R. Williams. It's a pond front scene with a, a, a little pond with dark foliage all around the edges. Deep into down this rabbit hole of research, having transcribed thousands of pages of letters and called or emailed countless people descended from people mentioned in Mary's letters and saying, you ever heard of this woman artist? And mostly getting a completely blank uh, reaction. And in some cases, getting people who say, oh, our grandfather adored her. We have pastels and paintings. Or um, oh, we always wondered who that M.R. Williams was, who had painted our great-great-grandmother when she was a Smith student. Deep, deep, deep down this rabbit hole, I take my mother's painting out of the 1830s farmhouse, the dark living room, 
to the back porch to get a full sunlight, high-res photograph of it for my catalog raisonné of Mary Rogers Williams in progress. And when the sun hit the signature, lower right, M.R. Williams, I just doubled over laughing, because when you look closely at it, it's not an R, it's a P with a sloppy dot after it. My mother's painting is not by Mary. It's not her style. It's not her handwriting. M.R. Williams is buried in the foreground foliage, and my mother had misread it. My mother doesn't like this painting. I've been giving Zoom lectures on Mary, and my mother is typing into the chat. Make sure everyone knows I don't like that painting. It has a great gold frame. I just bought it for the frame. I paid $30 for it. It goes with my eclectic farmhouse decor. So, Ma, that's for you. I double over laughing when I realize that I've gone down this rabbit hole completely by mistake. And I just said to my mother, and I couldn't quite believe Wesleyan University Press allowed me to use this line in my peer-reviewed book, I just said to my mother, Ma, who the bleep is M.P. Williams? M.P. Williams. There are other murky waterfront and forest glade scenes with that same signature, and it has a lopsided M and that same handwriting. It's not Mary's handwriting. Her M's are nice and neat and symmetrical. They turn up for 50 bucks on eBay and uh, live auctioneers. You can bid against me on those, okay? Just <laughs> go for it. I have no, I won't, you, won't, you won't find me arguing with you. We don't know anything about M.P. Williams. Which is why I said at the beginning of all of this, Eve, I think Mary really found you. It was the moment for you two to come together and and for you to help tell her story. If Mary were sitting here with us or having a cup of tea with us, what would you want to ask her? So I would ask her if she likes the book. I had a vivid dream right after the book uh, was in my hands, the first copy uh, the Wesleyan University Press got grant money to print it gorgeously, if I do say so myself. I had no responsibility for how gorgeously printed it is. And the night after I had a physical copy in my hands, I dreamed that I was having lunch with Mary in some gorgeous part of Italy. There's terraced hillsides behind us and red flowers drifting down, all the, all the, the lattice work. We're having lunch at a restaurant, and I hand her the book. And I, then I realized with horror, oh my God, it tells her she's going to die young. And I lift up in my seat and I can feel the adrenaline pouring through my body. Oh my God, I have to take it back from her perhaps. And she smiles and she says, oh, it's okay. Knowing that, that I was, that I had a short time on earth, it enabled me to get a lot done. That is such a story, Eve, and I'm so grateful for you sharing all of it with us. I want to end end our, our chat here with a little tease for the audience and just a little sneak preview of the project that you are working on now, which is another fascinating and little-known woman. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and about her? So I'm about a quarter of the way through my manuscript of my next book on Zoe Anderson Norris. She was a journalist who lived from 1860 to 1914. The proposed title for my book is The Queen of Bohemia Predicts Own Death, colon, The Forgotten Journalist Zoe Anderson Norris, comma, 1860 to 1914. And she was born and raised in Kentucky. Around 1900, she moved to New York, and she devoted the rest of her relatively short life to documenting 
documenting desperate immigrant poverty on the Lower East Side, advocating for reforms to help alleviate desperate poverty, and also partying hard one night a week with a group that she formed, intentionally disorganized, called the Ragged Edge Club, with a K. You often call her the Nellie Bly you've never heard of, and I can't wait to invite you back on the show to do a whole show on Zoe Anderson. Norris Eve, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing Mary's story and your story and how they surprisingly entwined. And thank you so much for bringing Mary and her work to light at all and for being here with me today. Thank you for this unbelievable opportunity, Carl. Thank you so much. I can't wait for us to do more shows together. If we look closely at her life and work, one of the lasting legacies of Mary Rogers Williams, who perhaps may have been lost to obscurity, but was not. And thanks to Eve, her biographer, and Mary in her work, they have helped us forever see new beauties just like that golden afternoon in the Italian hills. And I thank you to my listeners for joining us today. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support absolutely helps me keep creating this show. And patrons get advance notice of Gilded Gentleman events as well as special content created just for you. So join me in another two weeks for a look beneath all the glitter and the gold. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.